We are in Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him with clasped feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. Oh, you got it. Hallelujah. Well, welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you, uh, especially if this is your first time here. Uh, Really glad you're with us. Uh, Glad you're celebrating Easter with us. This is actually our first full Easter gathering. Uh, Believe it or not, we had a, a small gathering last year when we were sort of putting together a core team to help uh, get this church off the ground. I think we had, if if my memory's right, about 22 adults here, and that was including my extended family. So we've we've surpassed that in a year, which is exciting. Uh, But really, really glad you're here. Uh, Earlier in the week, uh, I was helping my son Jude get ready for bed. He's seven years old, and he was showing me his legs, which were all bruised and scraped up. They're like purple and red and brown. Uh, And I was like, yeah, that tends to happen when your hobbies include uh, jumping out of a tree, jumping off the deck, jumping off the top of my car, uh, building a ramp in the driveway so you can jump your bike off that. Just jumping related activities, you're going to get your legs banged up. And he was so upset. He said, I wish I just had a new body. And I said, well, you know, you will get a new body. When Jesus returns, you'll get a brand new body that's, that's perfect, just like Jesus' body. And he goes, what? <laughs> and so we began to talk about it. I said, yeah, you know, you go to heaven when, when you pass away. But when Jesus comes back at the very end of the age, everyone who believes in him is, is raised to life and given this new resurrection body that's, that's the same as Jesus' body that he got when he was raised from the dead. And then Jude asked, well, will I be resurrected? as a newborn baby or as an adult? I thought, well, that's a good question. We didn't cover that in seminary. (laughs) So I said, you know, pastoral move, what do you think about that? (laughs) And uh, and he he thought about it for a minute. He said, you know, I think I want to come back as a baby. I want to grow up all over again. Well, that was a pretty good answer. As I was describing this to him, I realized, uh, obviously, I have some more training to do in his uh, understanding of, of eschatology. Uh, but it made me realize that I think, I think this is true of a lot of us. I think most people would summarize the, the entire Christian faith with two statements. First, that Jesus died for our sins. And then second, that when we die, we go to heaven. And both of those things are true. 
And yet both of those things, I think we'll see today, are, are actually incomplete. And in a sense, they're, they're untrue because they're not complete. If Jesus only died for our sins and, and didn't rise again to new life, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we actually would still be dead in our sins. And if, and if our future is only going to heaven in this sort of bodiless state to be among the angels floating in the crowd, clouds, that's, that's no true and full salvation either. What the Bible pictures is a, a literal physical resurrection from the dead for all who believe and then a recreation of our world into a perfect new heavens and new earth. And so it's pretty remarkable, but I want to suggest today that, that the resurrection is the most important event in human history, and then out of that, that the resurrection of Jesus becomes the central defining reality of our lives, even our daily lives, our day-to-day -day interactions and everything we do. And so according to the scriptures, the resurrection changes everything. When you look at the New Testament, Jesus' friends were completely transformed, not at the moment of his death, but at the moment of his resurrection. Everything they did in life took on new depth, new meaning, new purpose, their relationships, their work, even their meals were transformed by Jesus' resurrection. And so what I want to do this morning and think would be most helpful for us is not to try to just simply explain the resurrection or uh, defend it, give all the facts around the resurrection, but instead to try to apply it, uh, try, to, try to put it in a way that we can be transformed by the power and the reality of the resurrection and what it means for our everyday lives. There's this great uh, line by the poet Wendell Berry, and he says, practice resurrection. And so what does it look like to, to practice resurrection? What difference does the resurrection make in our ordinary everyday lives? And so the three ways I wanna look at this, uh, three things that change, resurrection wonder, resurrection hope, and then resurrection life. And so resurrection wonder, we'll start there. Uh, and I wanna look at some of the story of the resurrection. We have four gospel accounts, four uh, eyewitness testimonies of what happened when Jesus was on earth. And these resurrection passages, they're full of wonder and, and astonishment and surprise. There's earthquakes and lightning and angels. It is, it is wonderful. And so in the passage we just looked at, Matthew 28, it says that the women approach the tomb with spices. And this is a very important job of, of sort of preparing the body after death. It's, it's a way of, of, uh, of treating the body so that it, it will uh, remain pleasant for longer in the tomb. And so the women go to do this important job, but when they get there, there's an enormous surprise. What they discover as they approach the tomb is that an earthquake takes place the stone, this thousand pound stone that was in front of the tomb gets rolled back, probably in front of their very eyes. And then an angel of the Lord comes down and sits on the stone, which makes sense because moving a stone that size is very heavy, I guess. I don't know why the angel sits there, but that's my guess. And it says this of the angel in verse three, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, in Mark's gospel, another one of the eyewitness testimonies, he, he uses these phrases, and they're really rich. They can be described the, describing the women. He said they're beside themselves. Their heads were spinning. They were stunned. They said nothing more. And Mark uses this word fear twice, and I, and I think he does it intentionally. But he describes the, the soldiers and the guards that were there to, to protect this body from being stolen or, or to, you know, obviously come out of the tomb. 
they are gripped with fear and they, they fall on the ground trembling like dead men. It's the same word fear that Mark uses to describe the women as they discover that Jesus is no longer dead. It says when, they, when Jesus appeared to them that they fell down in fear and trembling as well, but they fall down at the feet of Jesus in worship. And so there's a type of fear that makes us tremble, a type of fear that makes us like dead people, and then there's a type of fear that leads us to joy and to embracing Jesus and to wonder. Now in Luke's gospel, the angel asks this wonderful question, why do you look for the living among the dead? And this is probably before they, they meet Jesus. And so just imagine going to, to do this treatment for Jesus' body, to anoint it with these spices and oils, to be met with an angel, and first to be told, why do you look for the living among the dead? And the angel says, remember how he said that he would be crucified and in three days rise again. And then it says, suddenly they remembered. And in that moment, this joy and peace and excitement washes over them as they realize that it might just be true that Jesus has risen from the dead. They probably meant that Jesus, they probably expected that Jesus meant his resurrection was some kind of a spiritual resurrection, something that was, was like a resurrection. There's no precedent for a physical resurrection. They thought it was just a sort of an abstract idea that he would be resurrected. They weren't expecting a physical, literal, embodied resurrection from the dead. And remember, this is Sunday morning, and on Friday night, they had just lived through one of the most brutal crucifixions, this execution of Jesus that, that they witnessed with their own eyes. And so you can imagine on Saturday and then Sunday morning, they're, they're gripped with grief and even a, a form of PTSD after they've seen what's happened on the cross. They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They didn't expect to be greeted by him in this garden. They didn't expect to be able to sit down with him for dinner. And they experience wonder. Luke's gospel also tells this great story where Jesus appears to two people on a road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a town outside Jerusalem. And so it says Jesus' identity is hidden from them at first. And so Jesus comes up to these two men as they're walking and asks them what they're talking about. Now the men say, are, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on these last three days? And they begin to describe this Jesus who was a, a teacher, a fantastic teacher, a, a prophet and a, and a miracle worker, and, and maybe, just maybe even the Messiah, the one that Israel had hoped for for thousands of years. But now they begin to explain, but they, they were wrong. This Jesus was was crucified, hung on a cross until he died. And so now they're going home. Sunday morning, the show's over and they're walking home. Now Jesus interrupts them and basically says, are you sure? Don't you know what the prophets have written in the Old Testament? And it says that he began to open up to them the scriptures, all of the scriptures that pointed to the Messiah's death and more importantly, his resurrection three days later. And so their hearts are filled with joy and wonder, and this long journey becomes probably just a matter of minutes in their mind. And they beg Jesus to stay with them when they reach their place. And so Jesus goes in to have dinner with them. And it says at the table, Jesus broke bread as if to, to say a blessing. And in that moment that he did that, they recognized that it was him. The king was sitting right there with him. The moment that they saw him, he was gone disappeared before their very eyes. 
And the text says, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the road? And what's more, they didn't eat their dinner. They, it says they immediately got up and went straight back to Jerusalem and told everybody what they had seen. There was this sense of wonder. Now, the fourth gospel, John's gospel, he's, uh, John wrote about 30 years later than the other three gospel writers, so he always comes in with this deeper reflection, and, and he's had more time to process all of this, and so he's always one-upping the other three disciples in the way he tells his stories. Uh, but what John notes is that Jesus' head wrapping, uh, so he, his body was wrapped up like a mummy, but his, his headpiece, the head wrapping, it says was, was folded and placed neatly on the bench where Jesus had been. I think that's so fascinating that Jesus chose to do that. It's like, you know when you come home and then you go right back out and you want your, your spouse or your roommate to know you were there and so you leave a little note that's like, uh, went to get milk, went for a bike ride, raised from the dead. It's this sense of, of wonder that is, that is gripping the disciples. And, and the resurrection, that's what it does for us. It restores to us better than anything else in the world. It restores to us a sense of wonder. I think kids actually take to the resurrection more quickly than adults. We as adults, we need more facts. It doesn't sound right. We can be like the, like the Jews and the people in that day who, who didn't believe. Or we could be like the disciple Thomas who needed, needed to see Jesus for himself and touch the wounds. We have, we have doubts about all this. But like Jude, a child just says, that's awesome. I believe that. Now let me tell you what I want from you. <laughs> we so easily lose our sense of wonder. As, as adults, as, as we grow in life, I think we're, we're conditioned to lose the sense of wonder that the, that the resurrection and that Christianity as a whole, that life as a whole, can give to us. It's like a muscle that if it's not used, it, it atrophies over time. And so we find ourselves in our, in our adult lives and in our work, there's no sense of wonder at work. In our families, there's no sense of wonder. Even in our churches, there's no sense of wonder. And so the question here is, what do we do as Christians? How do, we, how do we cultivate that sense of wonder? And the first thing that comes to mind is that we have to slow down. We talk about this a lot in this church, but we are, we are so often in a hurry in our culture. And there is a, a contemplative writer named Thomas Merton who says that hurry is a form of violence against our own souls. Every time we're in a hurry, we miss so much. It's impossible to have a sense of wonder when we're constantly rushing from one thing to another and when, when our mind is preoccupied with so many different things. And so the first thing we have to do is slow down. Now, the second thing to recapture our, our sense of wonder is to pay attention to the world. Pay attention to what's going on in this world. Now, think about it. If, if Jesus' resurrection means that our world too will be resurrected, recreated in the end, that this very earth is going to be renewed and restored as a new earth, a new city, a new Jerusalem. It changes the way we, we think about this planet. It changes the way we experience life in this world. If you've ever been on a, on a walk with a little kid, it, it takes forever, right? If you're going on a hike through the woods, um, it's, it's just going to take so long. You go less than a mile an hour because they stop and look at everything. They stop and look at the ants. They stop and look at the flower. They stop and notice that a tree kind of looks like a man waving just a little bit. 
And so you have to be prepared to move at a much slower pace, but what they're doing is paying attention to their surroundings. They find it wonderful. They find it incredible. And I think that's the same approach we should have to to our natural world even, that this is a place that so matters to God that he is not just going to abandon it or, or wreck it or destroy it, but he's going to recreate it. And so pay attention to the world, but I think that shows us that third, pay attention to other people. Think about it, if if the renewal of our world means that the world matters far more, how much more so does it mean if, if our bodies are resurrected, if people are raised to life with these resurrection bodies, that every single person matters way more than we expect? And you think about it as if there was uh, like a, an incredible piece of, of art in here. Now, there is a lot of art in here. Uh, Easter at Trinity coincides with Art Month uh, at the school, uh, which we're happy about. And, but imagine, imagine if there was something in here that, that was like a Monet, an original Monet, something that had an, an incredible worth, something that, that you and I would probably have no real access to apart from a, a very expensive plane ticket and, and vacation. If, if a, an original Monet was hanging in here, we would all be immediately drawn to it. We would want to go right up to it. We would want to see every little, every little stroke on that canvas. We would think about what was going through the mind of the artist as he was creating this, this masterpiece that he created. We would want to know everything about it. We would hold it in high esteem. And so how much more so when we think about the, the true masterpiece that is in this room. Each and every person is a, is a masterpiece, masterwork of the original artist, the original creator. Every single human being on earth is, is the crowning creation of a good and loving and powerful and wonderful God. And so that means every single person that you meet, every single person in this room, I, I thought about saying like, turn to the person to your right and your left, but that's one of my pet peeves when people do that. I don't want to look at the person next to me, especially if I don't know them, but be aware of the other people in this room and think about the fact that everybody in this room has been made in the image of God. Infinitely more valuable than an original Monet. Way more detailed. Shows us way more about the creator, the original artist, than any painting ever could. Wouldn't we hold each other in such high esteem? Wouldn't we value each other as, as so great, as so interesting? We'd want to know everything about that other person. If it's true that that our bodies matter, that individuals matter, that that we're not just transported to heaven when when we die to remain in this bodiless state for all eternity, but every single person and every single body matters to God. Now, the fourth thing is this, draw near. Draw near to the Creator and Savior. If it's true that such incredible works of art are are all around us, we should draw near to the Creator and the Savior. The resurrection of our Lord, it enables complete forgiveness. All of our sins are covered and washed away. The scriptures say they are behind God's back so he can't see him anymore. We are promised a oneness with Christ and through Christ, restoration to God the Father. Nothing but his love and affection and warmth That's all we get with the Father. And so the resurrection of our Lord, it enables us to draw near to the Father. 
And so resurrection wonder is, is the first thing that's cultivated in the resurrection. And the next two things will we'll move more quickly because they're so related. Resurrection hope and then resurrection life. But resurrection hope. The Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians that without the resurrection, we are hopeless. And so hope, hope is, a, is a part of faith. Faith is belief and trust in God, but hope is the part of faith that's looking forward. It's, it's the forward-looking aspect of faith. And so 1 Corinthians says, without the resurrection, we are hopeless. We are more pitied than anyone. It says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the thing I think I've been thinking about the most all week. How, how is this true? that apart from a physical resurrection of Jesus, we would be stuck in our sins. It seems to make sense in my mind that if Jesus died for our sins and then decided to just ascend into heaven and remain there with the Father in the clouds, that could be great. Why wouldn't that work? But what Paul is saying is that we would still be stuck in our sins. And the reason for it is that death is a curse that has been brought on by our sin. Through the original sin of man, all people face this curse curse of death. And so if we are still under that curse, if we die and are not resurrected, we are still under the power of that curse. And that means the death of Jesus is no more powerful than all of the death that still remains in our world. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, that means there is no resurrection from the dead, which means we are still in our sin, and the sin still has as much power over us as anything Christ may have done. It's only if Jesus was physically, bodily raised from the dead that he has complete victory over Satan, sin, and death. We need Jesus' physical resurrection to experience the fullness of salvation. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, and he uses this wonderful illustration that, that we've talked about it before, but it's such good news. He says, Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, so in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now, if you're a farmer or growing up around a farm, you know what firstfruits are. Maybe if you're a gardener. Right around this time, in early spring, you get the first little fruits on the tree, the first berries on the vine. And what that means is that this long winter has come to an end. And even if spring is not fully here yet, even if you get one tiny little blueberry on the vine, you celebrate that because you know that means this entire harvest is coming. All you need is just one little fruit to prove that winter is over, spring is here, and now it, it's a sure thing. You can count on it. All the other fruits are coming. And so it says Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' resurrection means this, this period of winter, this period of death is over. And, and spring and, and the resurrection that comes with it is as certain as spring comes every single year. The coming harvest that comes after Christ, the first fruits, is the resurrection of all people who believe in him. So first Christ is raised from the dead, and then at the proper time, all his followers are raised as well. It says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. And the way we're resurrected is with these resurrection bodies, similar to the body of Jesus, a body that is perfect in every way, a body that was as it was meant to be, no sickness, no pain, no, no injuries, no, no death, all of the things that, that are so hard about living in a body now, they're all wiped away. The resurrection that we, that we experience is the same resurrection body as Jesus experiences. And so what the scriptures are saying is that the physical resurrection of God's people is essential to the good news of our faith. Without us physically, bodily rising from the dead, the good news of our faith is, is still incomplete. And so this is our hope, that we have a life with God beyond the grave. That's the hope of Christianity, a resurrection hope, life beyond the grave. But the last thing is probably the best thing of all. It's resurrection life. And so resurrection hope says that we have hope beyond the grave. Resurrection life says we have life before the grave. It would be good enough if we just had life after the grave. That would be plenty to look forward to. But what the scriptures teach is that we actually have a resurrection life before the grave. Eternal life, as it's described in the New Testament, begins the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, your eternal life has already begun. That's one of the great news in Scripture. The resurrection was the first visible sign that God's victory had been won, but it's not just an ending. It's not the end of the story. Even though the Gospels wrap up with the moment of the resurrection, it, it carries on, and it's more of a new beginning than anything else. The resurrection, didn't, it wasn't just Christ raised from the dead, but it was a new beginning of how things work in the world. Eternal life is now among us, within us. Romans 8 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. And so what that means is there, there is a powerful resurrection spirit type of power at work in the world. And it's, it's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the same power of God that now lives and breathes and dwells in your very heart. And so Christianity is not just about saving souls for heaven. It's about enjoying eternal life with God right now. If God is concerned only with heaven, then what happens on earth is of very little concern to him. But if our resurrection is physical, if, if the recreation of the world is, is literal, then we get two things. We get the promise of the afterlife, but we also get life right now. We get, we get heaven and we get earth. And right now, where, where we are between Christ's first coming and his second coming, that means that we sort of have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. We are, we are in between people. We have the breath of heaven in our lungs, and yet our feet are still firmly planted on this earth. We have the power of heaven in our hearts. All the time while we live on earth. And so the eternal life, that Christ achieves for you, it's already begun. Right here in this room, right here in Missouri, right where you work, right where you live. And that should give us an overwhelming sense of wonder. 
This is what the resurrection has done. It's, it's all kinds of good news. It achieves our forgiveness from sin. It achieves our restoration to God the Father. It demonstrates the great power that's at work through God in the world. It creates this new community where we can be known and we can be loved, where we can finally belong in the world. The resurrection restores our sense of wonder in a world that's lost it. The resurrection promises a hope beyond the grave. And the resurrection promises a life before the grave. And so today, slow down, pay attention, draw near, and start your eternal life right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have achieved this life for us, that it wasn't enough just to send your son to die in our place, but you also raised him to new life so that we could know without a shadow of a doubt that the victory is yours. That what looked like the greatest defeat in, in all humanity was actually the greatest victory as Jesus rose and walked out of that grave. Father, help us to believe that this is true and not, not just to believe it with our minds, but to believe it and cling to it with our hearts, Lord. May the resurrection of your son change everything that we do, everything that we think about ourselves, everything that we put our hope in. Father, would you enable us to live in the fullness of eternal life right here and now? We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, on the night before Jesus' death, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he took bread, and he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he said, This cup represents the blood of your salvation, which was saved for your forgiveness. And in the tradition of the church, we take communion every single week as a way of both remembering and even participating in the resurrection of our Lord. Now, body and blood, it's, it's a strange thing to celebrate every week. It's, it's, a, it's a little hard if you think about it, but only if there's no resurrection. Broken body and shed blood is great news where there's resurrection, where that death conquered evil and saved us from our sins. And in the same way, the bread and the wine represents this, this literal, literal resurrection that we look forward to that we don't just go to heaven, but we have a recreated earth, that we are invited to the table of the Father God where we will eat and drink for all eternity.